Uh, the good news that Malcolm Holmline is in Israel. It's always extra special due to weekly update when he's in the Holy Land, and in this case, the Holy City of uh, Jerusalem. And um, uh, we get an opportunity to speak with him live. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays at the 7.40 Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's great to be with you, and especially from sunny, beautiful Yerushalayim. Oh, it must be incredible, then, I'm sure. Um, the weather is beautiful. It was uh, raining a little bit before, which is a bracha for Israel. And uh, now it's sunny and beautiful, and I can look right onto the Harabayit from where I'm sitting, and it's a beautiful sight. Is this the is this the annual uh, conference trip? Is that coming up later? What yes. Is- so what, no, we we're here to prepare for the annual conference, um, which will be taking place in a week here in Jerusalem, with many people coming and a terrific program. And I know that there's usually another country attached. Is that something we could talk about now, or, or is, that, is that for a later time? For a later time. Okay, but there will be something, right? It's not just Israel, usually. We hope so, yeah. All right, very nice. Uh, speaking of other countries, uh, <laughs> a lot to talk about, to say the least, but let's talk about... Uh, uh, Israel for a moment before we talk about the Prime Minister and some of his travels this week. Um, well, it does seem that there will be no annexation in the near future. Last week you said there may have been some misunderstanding uh, between groups in Israel and and, and the, the White House, maybe even a misunderstanding between the government of Israel and the White House. Uh, do you see anything uh, in this direction of annexation happening before the March 2nd election? I do not see anything happening um, of significance. For one, uh, anything involving other parties is not going to take place. The rejectionism of the Palestinians has been in evidence again, and they, again, are missing an opportunity, um, something which is the same track record for through all the years. And the difference with this deal is that, for once, it doesn't just put the onus on Israel. It doesn't demand concessions in advance from Israel. It says that um, uh, the formula of land for peace is really peace for land and that the, uh, there are obligations on both sides and demands on both sides, but it doesn't for the first time just put and expect from Israel concessions before there is a commitment to peace and a chance to engage in negotiations. The administration put forward a plan. It is a, a thoughtful one. Uh, there can be criticisms from the left and from the right, as there are, yeah. but... I think that uh, everybody can acknowledge that uh, those who, A, claimed that there was no plan and this was all, you know, a hoax, or that it was uh, and made predictions in the other directions on it, they should read the whole thing, see what it, it says. It's certainly subject to review and to, to changes, but that's what negotiations are about. Here you have a framework that enables them. And if we look at some of the reactions, both from Arab countries, and, and, and the most important one, Nahum, I think, was the Egyptian poll that came out yesterday that showed that the vast majority of people want to see the agreement enacted. They want to see negotiations. They they back an Arab-Israeli deal, even, even though, you know, we know polls all along have said that there was the anti-Israel attitudes were prevalent. The fact is that we see in this uh, at least one poll uh, certainly a change, and Boris Johnson has come out in, from, from, in favor of it. And the EU, despite the efforts of their foreign minister who condemned the deal, uh, could not get a vote. And there were a number of countries, especially the East European countries, who who blocked it. So it's not a universal reaction, and it is no one universal assessment uh, of the deal. 
it is something that uh, is thoughtful, has a lot of things in it for the Palestinians, 50 billion in aid, the territorial questions, et cetera. And, the, and it denies the Palestinians the first time a veto, which always enabled them to avoid the responsibility. The fact that UNRWA came out on it is disgraceful. The fact that the uh, Europeans can't uh, find the courage to stand up and doesn't they don't have to buy it lock, stock, and barrel, but they should be uh, adopting a position, a, a, a constructive and positive position. Yeah, at least and, and at a position that would at least get people to the table. Because again, that Egyptian poll you cite, I don't know. I don't know if it means they're just in favor of negotiation at this point. If they're really, you know, into the deal, so to speak. But at least you know they're looking at it as as something hopeful down the road. Uh, let's put it that way. And for those of us who you know, <laughs> who who you know who who um, have a little bit of hope injected in us when we hear about countries like Egypt having a uh, a populace that actually wants peace, as long as the balloons. And as long as the incendiary devices, and as long as, I mean, rockets for sure, as long as all this continues to fly from Gaza into Israel, that, that is, there's not going to be any opportunity for anybody, Egyptian, Jew, anyone, to actually uh, realize this dream for peace, right? As long as the violence continues and there's no condemnation, which is part of the agreement um, uh, by, the, by the PA and others of Hamas, etc., nothing's going to move forward. Uh, that is true. That the the but but this deal doesn't say everything freezes if the Palestinians disagree. It gives them four years right. and a freeze uh, on Israel's development. But it doesn't mean that Israel in areas like the Jordan Valley and, and other areas would be would be frozen in time. And I think the the message has to be that the Palestinian people have to hold their leadership to account once and for all. The Arab leaders are saying, look, we're tired of this. We, we want to see some progress. The Arab League adopted a critical position against it. But individual Arab countries, and I sat next to several ambassadors who were there at the ceremony, the Arab ambassadors, <coughs> and while they didn't applaud a lot of things, they did, and, and the fact that they were there. Right. And that Saudi Arabia, Egypt, others, they came out with, supportive, even if not adoptive statements. And we should acknowledge that there's a, a shift taking place. And the, the, the question is, will the Palestinians hide behind terrorism? Will they try to incite? Will they just be obstructionists? Will they try to line up with Russia, which has been critical, and others, in order to avoid the responsibility, which only punishes their people more? Yeah. Um, and just to make it clear, because I think it's important, because I, I, you just hit on something with your answer that I never really considered, I, I kept thinking that that was a priority. Uh, PA and others, you know, Palestinian leadership condemning Hamas, uh, rejecting its mission to destroy Israel, etc. But as you just reminded us, there's plenty that can continue and that can be implemented in this deal, whether that happens or not. Right? Would that be a way of putting it? And one thing to start with, yes, it would be. And one thing to start with is pay to slay. Right. Is that the demand that the administration has made this week, and, and others have made all along? And you know, we've discussed many times the payments to terrorists. That the more they kill, the three ta attacks we saw, and then I saw this week here in in uh, Jerusalem and, yeah. and elsewhere, um, one just a few blocks from where I was. Um, uh, you know, th there's got to be action 
and by the international community to say this stops no matter what happens in negotiations. This is an immoral, it's horrendous, it's outrageous to have governments rewarding people who kill civilians, and uh, the more they kill, the more they get. So that that is one area where you you could start. And on the Hamas thing, it's very interesting that Hamas, uh, the polls in Egypt also showed about a 70% negative view on Hamas. And and that has implications, obviously. The the um, you know the the Palestinians are looking at some point for negotiations. Hamas is, wants to challenge the PA, so both don't want to look like they're weak in confronting Israel. But the the plans demands that it be demilitarized and that Hamas uh, recognize Israel, something that they're not prepared to do. Nor is is Abbas really ready to do it. And I think it's it's also outrageous that Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Olmert is coming with Abbas to hold a press conference in the United States. They can do what they want in here in the region, but coming to the United States will confuse the issues, will will again give cover to Abbas not to be responsive. I, I, I saw that item, and I saw the reaction from, from the White House, but what's the purpose? In other words, what what's Olmert's goal with that meeting? Well, he'll be able to say, look, I negotiated with him, but he has to also say that he walked, that Abbas walked away from that offer, which yeah. was, by and large, almost everything he wanted. So... I don't know if he's looking to grandstand or to to get public recognition. Uh, I've not talked to him about it, but I think it, the, the whole idea of it is is um, certainly unacceptable and, and and at the very at most and confusing at the very least. Right. I would uh, s- about why would he appear with him? Right. Why, would, why now? Right. I would add unusual to that. By the way, the car ramming and the shooting and the attacks that you were that you referenced, some are actually attributing to the peace plan. Uh, I, I was thinking that as we get closer to elections, often we see attacks like this. Can we can we generally assume that these are random attacks that really could take place at any time? And the fact that there's now a peace plan uh, proposed or an election coming up is is probably irrelevant. I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it contributes to the atmosphere and people uh, the, uh, the uh, incitement that we see again in the Palestinian Authority. But the attempts to organize demonstrations and protests have largely fizzled out. And I think it has to do with the fact that they don't have the PA authority, doesn't have to appeal to people, and that they are sick and tired of them, even if they don't like the deal. Uh, but the, the, the incidents appear to be individual incidents, although I'd say in most cases we find some connection, but uh, one was a recent convert to Islam from Haifa and the um, and was driving and seemed just to turn around and leave right after he rammed into the uh, soldiers, one of whom was is very seriously hurt. And twelve in, in Israel, when, even when they say lightly wounded, it it doesn't mean that they don't have numerous fractures and. Yeah. Um, things happen to them. Um, most they caught the guy now, and they caught the one who carried out the attack inside the, the old city of Jerusalem. But yeah, I do think that this ha- is related to the to the proposals and to the reactions to the proposals. Rather than saying, "Look, it's on the table. We don't pick it up from the table, but we're certainly ready to sit down and talk and negotiate." And, and instead, they're they're inciting the people, and they want to see. Uh, incidents and violence, I think, because it, it bolsters their position and it puts the kibosh on Arab states that want to come out in favor but are always concerned about the street reaction. But you're not ready to say that if not for this election slash peace proposal atmosphere, there likely would not have been these attacks, right? You're not willing to go to that. No, level. Well, yeah. if they're lone attacks and and not coordinated with every any uh, in, you know organization right. or something, then the likelihood right. if it's not today, it's tomorrow, or 
a guy's just crazy and sees the soldiers there, saw an opportunity to ram into them. Uh, it may not have been planned or may have been planned. We don't know until there's more interrogation and information comes out. You know, that but, I never even considered. It was the middle of the night, and there's a group of soldiers. You're right. Someone may have just said, you know, oh, finally, here's my opportunity. Very good point. And not and, and, and not and, and not even, it out right. right. Not even have planned it uh, uh, that thoroughly. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and he is in Jerusalem as we speak about the uh, events of the week here at JM in the AM. Uh, so which um so let, let's talk about the, uh, the the president's trip. He went to Uganda, and, and, and am I right that Uganda announced that they would be um, um, building or moving its embassy to Jerusalem? Was that what happened? You mean the prime minister's trip, not the president? Oh, I, I meant prime minister. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, no, I thought maybe there was another one. No, yeah, the prime minister visited Uganda, and they, they announced there, and as you know, we were there last year at this time, uh, to promote the idea of moving the embassy and met with the, the same president of Uganda that, that Mr. Netanyahu met. Um, and, and we know many of the officials there from their tenures in the United States and visits um, that Uganda said it will consider moving its embassy to Jerusalem. There was uh-huh. no decision and not an announcement. But what was also important is that the president of Sudan was there. Right and held talks with Netanyahu and indicated that they would consider uh, negotiations and talked about uh, overflights, which may already be approved, that the Israel can fly over Chad and Sudan and Egypt, uh, cutting the time a lot. Um, they, they also talked about the security implications for them because there were critics inside the Sudan. And, um, and it was a pretty bold move, I thought, on the part of the president, who didn't hide, the president of Sudan, who didn't hide his approach to the prime minister. Interesting. Uh, and that will hopefully attract even more and more countries. There was a time just a, a couple of years ago where it seemed that African countries were just dying to establish relationships with Israel. I mean, b- both for selfish reasons. Water, they are. They still are. And it's still going they, they, on? They, because Israel has so much to offer them from post-harvest reclamation and water, independence, energy, and so many areas that people don't know about, but education, medical care. Israelis are all over the continent helping, building, and uh, with considerable appreciation that I heard expressed in the countries we have visited uh, for the Israeli assistance. So that that goes on, and the uh, and more countries are looking at the possibility of diplomatic relations. Unbelievable! Talk about being a light onto the nations, and if, if if Israel could have a role in turning around both the economy and the poverty level in these African countries, it just would be unbelievable. Um, Malcolm, which country uh, which country has the most anti-government protests right now? Iran, Iraq, Lebanon. Are there others you would put in that category? I mean, there are a lot of countries where we see pretty interesting uh, manifestations against the leadership or against the government. But um, the the demonstrations in Iraq are continuing, even though they get very little attention. Uh, Some of the demonstrations in Lebanon as well in this past week. Uh, But we're also seeing the clashes in in the Turkish-Syrian clashes in Idlib, very serious development, not getting kind of attention it deserves, and it involves the Russians as well, and we could see growing confrontation between Turkey 
and and forces of the uh, aligned with uh, Assad and some of the militia groups. Uh, this is um, uh, they think that a campaign, that a military campaign of Turkey against Syrian forces, could put them on a, on a collision course with Russia, uh, which is really the only superpower ally after its break with the United States. So it's it's got a lot of implications for the region. Demonstrations inside Iran are continuing, and, and we see a much more interesting reaction from them to the deal of the century, which uh, they said that the deal will die even before President Trump does. Um, and, uh, you know, they have, they supposedly are putting forward their own proposal, and they're talking about Iran backing the Palestinian armed forces uh, to the degree possible. There was that conditionality, which I thought was was somewhat interesting on their part. Are, are Turkey and Syria officially at war? How would you describe what's going on on that border? Well, right now they're in conflict, and it's a potential that has the potential to spread and to widen. Um, for Turkey, they made this the, a red line for them, control of that border. For the, the Assad forces, and they, they never, they did not support Assad, and the Assad forces are clearly into Turkish, and they want, because they don't want any foreign powers occupying land there or and, and restoring the territories that Turkey holds back to, to Syrian forces. So there is inherent um, conflict situations there that could get more and more serious. You know, the the power that's deployed there on the part of the Iranians, and you have Iran also sitting on the sidelines, and certainly Russia and planes getting involved as a possibility. So we will have to see what what happens. But people should watch that that the situation around Idlib. And your reaction to this story, Russia today said that its ally Syria nearly shot down a civilian plane carrying 172 passengers while trying to repel an Israeli airstrike near Damascus the day before. Well, Russian says it doesn't mean it's true. We've not seen any corroborating evidence of it, and I think we should wait. Israel has to strike when it can at the sites of the where weapons are being transferred, where they're being manufactured. If you look scientific center, which I've talked to you about for many years, which periodically gets bombed because they were doing nuclear research, they were doing other research. It's also a storage place uh, for weapons. And this was near the uh, Mazen Air Force Base and uh, was a necessary uh, operation. As you know, a number of terrorists and operatives were killed, both Iranian and Syrian. And it shows that Iran is still continuing to try to stabilize region shipping weapons into um, to, to Hezbollah in, in uh, Lebanon. Right. And uh, and this was why Israel had to act the way they does. Moscow accused the IDF of using the civilian plane as a shield during its attack early Thursday. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me how Russia always has Syria's back, no matter who the conflict's with and no matter who it is that... Uh, yeah, it, it, Syria is so weak at this point, right? Am I that that would be an accurate statement? Syria is is but, it, it, well. Also, Russia has a lot of vested interests, and this is a place where they have challenged the United States and are dominant, where they are playing this critical role, and uh, may find themselves entangled more and more in something with uh, the Turkish conflict or Iranian-Turkish conflicts uh, heat up. Um, but he has invested. In, and he has air force bases, naval bases there. He's gained a lot from the sale of weapons in, in this instance uh, to Syria, and the um, 
So, you know, this is an area of direct conflict with the United States and is likely to become even more um, heated, I think, uh, as the as the tensions mount there. Uh, who's responsible for taking out Qassam al-Rimi? Oh, well, it wasn't me, I can tell you that, but I think it's a great thing. Whoever did it gets a big yashikar. We thank them for the removal, and as we saw with Soleimani, and everybody said it'll get worse, they'll do terrible things, you know, they're just going to replace him in a half an hour or somebody. It's not true. You cannot replace these key individuals. Their knowledge, their tactics, their involvements are not replicated by other people. So every time a top level person of these terrorist entities are 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 removed it's removed it is beneficial removal of Soleimani continues to reverberate and we hear it manifest in people's comments and the absence of attacks since then because of the he he was planning them and he he played a critical role in their execution uh, and, and the president uh, wondered aloud this week how Iran is going to respond to all of this right what their next step might be as they consider um, uh, the aftermath of uh, uh, the end of the Iran deal and uh, the attitude that the president basically has used toward Iran at this point, I mean, has Iran made any public comments this week about uh, you know where what they how they see things going in the future? We will certainly talk to them about what the, and we see from them what their plans are for the future. Right now, I think everything is a big question mark. There's so many forces at play in in the region that it is, it is impossible to predict and to assess. But what, what is critical is taking a strong stand, being clear in, a, in the positions of the West, making themselves marginally relevant. I mean, they, come, they find a voice to condemn the peace plan, but not to stand up against a lot of the terrorist entities, with the exception of Boris Johnson. And, uh, you know, and that weakness is also manifest in, the, in what we see, the increase in anti-Semitism. I don't know if you saw the statistics for Britain that came out uh, a day or two ago, but shows a 7% increase overall to about eight, over 1,800 anti-Semitic incidents, but 160 of them were violent assaults. And that's a 25% increase. And the governments have to do more, to, and there were calls for immediately from members of the parliament, et cetera, to stand up to what is happening. But it, unfortunately, these increases are taking place in other countries, and the governments who pay lip service to it often aren't taking the necessary measures and providing the kind of uh, enforcement that is necessary. And, and that's true in, in dealing with the issues in the Middle East as well. When you stand up, do the right thing you'll find that the others will follow. The, the people in, in the region are looking for leadership. They're hungry for it, and it has to be provided by the right people. Uh, speaking of anti-Semitism, do you see that the coronavirus now is being, uh, um, is being used as a, uh, as a topic of anti-Semitism, that it's possible, according to some conspiracy theories out there, that in fact Jews are responsible for it? I guess whenever anything like this happens, we shouldn't be surprised at that, right? Well, I'm still I'm always am surprised. You're right, but uh, you know the Black Plague, other things were blamed on Jews, and many Jews paid with their lives for for plagues because it came an opportunity to extort them or to take their property and and uh, to express the hatred that was felt towards them and divert attention from other from the domestic uh, concerns or, or opposition. And I think 
the the fact that Rick Wiles is expressing these views and and remains invited to the White House events is a big mistake, and hopefully that will end. He's made continuous uh, anti-Semitic and hateful remarks, and he should. Well, you can't take him off the air maybe for it, but you can certainly limit the accessibility and the recognition that he receives. And with the friends that the Jewish community has in the White House, why do you think it's taken that long to do it? To limit him, to limit I, I him, or know. to disinvite him, it, it doesn't make sense. And I'm sure you've you've expressed your dissatisfaction, right? Well, there's been many expressions of dissatisfaction about Wiles after his earlier comments about a Jew coup, uh, and something that uh, you know people tend to dismiss when these kind of comments are made, but right. they shouldn't. They have ramifications. It gets a life of its own and gets repeated because there were Jewish members of the House involved in some of it. They right away try to portray it as uh, as Jewish motive. And I think it's potentially dangerous. Uh, I don't know. Do you? I don't know if you saw this article by Thomas Friedman about Mother Nature and the uh, peace process in the Middle East. Did you buy any chance? I did not. Oh, you didn't see it. Okay, because he ha- he's making a point that unless there's cooperation and a real peace effort uh, going forward from this point, all the energy and all the water and all the uh, the food security, etc., that's you know that, that that region is dependent on. Unless Israel can get along with its neighbors and really have peace, especially with Gaza, uh, there'll essentially be an implosion of all of these resources. And I just you know you you don't know who to believe when you read stuff like this. And he's not always. But, the... well, there's no need to be an implosion because Israel is not being isolated as he and others predicted it would be. In fact, there are more and more countries reaching out, and and there's no reason to believe that you'd have to have a, a collapse of the system. We see the Mediterranean initiative being coming more and more attractive, attracting more support and countries. The the interchanges between Israel and many Arab countries that are not publicized, but it clearly are recognized, and some of the statements that were made in response to the to the deal of the century also reflected that as well, that they, um, you know, the, the, there, there is um, a groundswell of support, and I think the, the party that is going to suffer most are the, are the people in Gaza, the people in the PA, who have no economic infrastructure, who don't have jobs, and who are dependent on outside assistance, and it is... The, the wisdom of the plan is to say to the Palestinians, you can have it better. $50 billion in aid, other things, that will be your way. So I, you don't like everything in it, get to the table. I, I got to read this. I got to read this to you, and, and you have to give me your reaction. He writes, Israel and Gaza have vast capacity to tap the Mediterranean Sea for manufactured water, and Jordan has great capacity to tap its vast empty deserts for manufactured solar power. They also be networked into a confederation harnessing the sea and sun with joint commissions to manage water, energy, and food security that would create healthy interdependencies. Then they could all rise economically together rather than the siloed, unhealthy interdependency or unilateralism that they are now creating where they compete for water, energy, and food and pollute one another and fall together. I guess he doesn't get it that uh, that that Israel, in fact, has the openness and that people are ready to work with Israel on their resources, you know, certainly he doesn't think so. Well, first, 
so that proposal is something we came up with 25, 30 years ago in a commission I worked on to talk about the possibilities of confederation, but one where Israel's sovereignty is retained. And we have seen a qualitative change over the years where you have increasing involvement of Iran and, and, and Turkey, aggressive uh, terrorism-supporting entities, which you cannot uh, dismiss. It is true that we want to see greater cooperation. And the regional approach in a lot of issues would be important. The Arab masses, Israel's technology, pull, pulling together the, the Israel, the energy discoveries in Israel, Cyprus, Lebanon, uh, and, and the pipeline to Egypt, the refining in Egypt, and fines off of Egypt's coast. These things could all bring together to, to make it a powerhouse economically, and, uh, and we could arrange uh, have security arrangements that would provide for everybody's needs. But you can't be naive about it. Right. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. And, and it's not just something where you wave, wave a magic wand to achieve. There is a lot of cooperation. Jordan and Israel, Israel provides water to Jordan, electricity and water to Gaza. Certainly the West Bank uh, benefits uh, Israel from Israel in many ways. So there is interaction and some interdependence already. Uh, yeah, of course. And as we see from the African example that we just spoke about earlier, you know, it's really just up to the other parties, not Israel, to express some desire to live peacefully and to have a nice exchange, and in that way they'll uh, they'll benefit from it. Um, I, I don't know how such a smart person could be so clueless when it comes to this. All, all we're waiting for is a real peace partner who wants to, you know, live in peace and take advantage of what Israel has to offer. Um, finally, finally, the elections, uh, the suspicion is now uh, that, um, uh, that the... Um, uh, that the that that if in fact the left wing government blue and white ends up forming a government that whatever deal was made by President Trump or uh, um, uh, proposed by President Trump is essentially not going to be uh, implemented. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think some of the uh, people on the right are frustrated with the lack of annexation up until this point. Are you getting any indication yet about how this election is going or what we can expect? Uh, the people I speak to, I find people who are not going to vote, people are frustrated, they're tired of the election, they don't like it. Um, I think when it comes down to it, they feel the obligation. I know that Israelis who are coming in that week for APEC or other conferences are all flying back on Sunday so that they could vote. They take voting very seriously. And in this case, the question is, will it make a difference? Will the outcome be different? Will a fourth election be necessary, or will they be able to come about with uh, some sort of a coalition that they can all live with? By the way, the leader of Blue and White, Scott's met with the president, and he came out very positive about the deal. And so it's not automatic that Blue and White would take, you know, that vastly different position. Obviously, they come from a a different place than uh, the prime minister. Uh, but, you know, bottom line, it's Israel's security. It's the realities on the ground that will dictate. There's no flexibility with that. Right. The, you know, the Jordan Valley's importance is it's seen by both parties, the Blue and White and Likud, and most others. Um, Yigal Alon and the Alon plan recognized it many years ago that this is essential for Israel's security and Turkey's uh, and Jordan's security. And I think that that you know, it is, um, th- th- there are certain things in which Israel has no flexibility when it comes to assuring the security of future generations. Uh, uh, by the way, I want to tell you one other good thing that we saw this week was that in Madrid, the city has turned over a magnificent building to the Jewish community to build the Jewish, the first Jewish museum in Madrid, uh, the, first, the last capital in Europe, I think, not to have a, a central Jewish museum. I don't know if Portugal does, but the um, 
and this is um, uh, going to be uh, the uh, Museo Judeo and the, the Jewish Museum in, in Madrid. And the um, the building is called the um, I, I forgot there was a name that was derived from the from the Nazi era, um, and the the uh, place was used to um, house or put under house arrest people. So this is really an important uh, opportunity to highlight the history uh, of Jews in Sepharad and uh, its influence and uh, bring back uh, the re- remembrances and the history and traditions of the Sephardic community. Wow, very nice. Uh, finally, I just got to ask you, uh, when you see the snubs and you see the tearing up of paper at the State of the Union address, are you saying to yourself, how did we ever get to this point? Look, the polarization and the um, you know pettiness that we've seen on all sides and in so many instances, you know, it, it's how the world sees it. It's how uh, you know the Iranians played up that picture of her tearing it up and saying, you know, that it's coming to this outrageous thing and how divided Americans are and et cetera. It's true, Americans are somewhat divided, but we—that's why I think responsible people can't allow an election to to rend us apart to exacerbate the existing tensions, to destroy the political center, to let issues, including Israel, become polarized and, and politicized. They have to be bipartisan. They have to, we have to recognize that the security and other issues that are of primary importance require us to be united. And bottom line is, I think we are. You know, there's a poll that came out that debunked one of the concerns that had been expressed by some people, leaders in the Jewish community, about the alienation and, and direction. It says that 80% say that they're just as supportive of Israel as they were five years ago, and that the 70-some percent expressed the full support. doesn't mean they endorse every political position or, or policy, but fundamental support, recognizing the importance of Israel. And, and, um, and this is across the board uh, for American Jews. It's a very positive and important statement, which runs contrary to the assertions that uh, certain leaders have been making over over um, over recent years. And and I think that that um, it was a very significant um, uh, poll by the number. It was several thousand, uh, two and a half thousand, I think. But two thirds of them say they are attached or very attached to Israel on an emotional level, wow. and. Fifty-seven percent identified as pro-Israel, but and sometimes even critical of Israeli policy. So this is an important statement and, and reasserts what we've been saying all along: that I think the more people get it, and that the anti-Semitism, the concern about the rise of, of Jew hatred, you know, drives people back home, and they they see the importance, more importance uh, for Israel, uh, just as they recognize that they want to come back to the community to have the support systems that it provides and the security that we try to provide. And it's very important that communities be aware and welcoming and offer opportunities for people to be involved and and feel connected. No question about it. Will you be in a country next Friday where we can speak? I will let you know during the week. Uh, God willing, yes. All right. Thank you so much. God willing, in the sunny hills of Jerusalem. All right. Enjoy Jerusalem for Shabbat. (laughs) Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.